so we're talking about these these ends of scripture inspiration inerrancy infallibility let's just start with some basics remind ourselves from last week what do we mean when we say scripture is inspired Okay. God's divine influence is in the process of composition, the writing of the texts, and in the process of copying, transmitting, translating, reproducing those texts. Okay. Um, good. What about inerrancy? Flawless. Without error. That's sort of the really simplified version. The scriptures do not contain errors. Okay. There's a, a rather long um, theological statement put out by a group of evangelical scholars and pastors who got together. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. If I remember correctly, it's a couple hundred pages long. Bless you. And um, they've you, you can boil that whole document down to one sentence. And the sentence is... Uh, that the, the scriptures are without error in all that they teach, and they do not affirm anything contrary to fact. Word choicing is chosen really, really carefully because we're trying to be clear and not overstate the case. And we're, we'll unpack that in a second. Uh, and then infallibility is uh, incapable of having an error. Okay. Trustworthy and accurate yes. in what it says about faith. Okay. And this is where things get start to get nuanced. And so inerrancy sort of starts us down this trend and infallibility picks it up. That the scriptures are true and trustworthy in all that they affirm. And then we have to consider what the scriptures are doing. Okay. And so the, the question that's going to be the reminder and the thing that's going to orient us on this is what kind of book is the Bible. So I'm just going to let the question hang for a second as you think about it. What kind of book is the Bible? What's its content? Its subject matter? What is it about? What do you think? It is a divine revelation of who God is. I would say that's its primary task, right? And I would also follow up and say God is the main character of the Bible. We are not. We are secondary characters who make a serious mess of things. Uh, but God is the, the main character of the Bible. Yes, okay. Redemptive story. God's love for humanity. For sure. Is the Bible a science book? Is it a science? Is its purpose to do... Let me ask it this way. Is its purpose to do science? No, that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to reveal God to us. Does it overlap with science? Ah, okay. Is the Bible a math book? No, but there will be math involved. Read numbers. There's math in this. Okay? I, I apologize if that verse is too long. Right? 
is the the Bible um, a book of just songs and poetry? No, but those are going to be included. Okay. So what we say when we talk about inerrancy and infallibility gets nuanced. Okay. Uh, and, and this, depending on how we want to walk that nuance, is really what starts to lean us in our interpretive directions. And we're talking about that in a little bit. Um, the subject matter of the Bible is not necessarily science and math and history. But what inerrancy and infallibility confess, as we believe these things about the Bible, is that when the Bible speaks to facts of science and math and history, it is not wrong, and it's not lying to us. So inerrancy says that what it records and passes on to us is not in error. Right? And so where the Bible presents us with things like Jesus' parables, that is Jesus telling a story to make a point. And we don't necessarily need the prodigal and the father to be sort of passing the road as Jesus tells the story, right? It doesn't need to be a historically based story for Jesus to make his point in the, in the parables, yeah? But things like the Exodus, the history of the Exodus account and the theology of the Exodus account are very tightly intertwined. The history and the science of Genesis 1 and 2 and the theology of Genesis 1 and 2 are very tightly intertwined. Now, because the Bible is not a science textbook, it isn't necessarily giving us all of the scientific details. What it does give us, however, is true to the reality, and that's the confession in inerrancy. Infallibility comes along as a support to that and says, based on the fact it does not contain these errors, and it is true and trustworthy, to those ends and honest about its history, its science, its math, its timing, its etc. I then trust it for the life and rule of faith and to reveal this God to me that I encounter in its pages. So these are kind of the concepts that we're working from. Is that making sense kind of as a baseline? Okay, are there questions on that sort of baseline at this point? Sweet. <clears throat> Follow-up. Um, would we say that things today are inspired in the same way that we would confess that the Bible is inspired? Things today in what sense? Let's, let's limit it to things that happen in church. So preaching and teaching. Okay. To a point. To a point. In the same manner or with the same kind of authority as the Bible? That's the question. If there's contradiction, Bible rules. Fair. So then it, Scripture, holds the weight of authority. Okay. So um, a, th a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, K-A-R-L-B-A-R-T-H, Karl Barth, reacting to a lot of things in a very sort of postmodern swing following the two world wars. And he says that the way that this works is that uh, Jesus Christ is the incarnate word of God. And so he is the full self-disclosure of everything God is in his incarnation. The trick is for those of us who didn't get to see that, 
we now have this. And so what God has done in the inspiration of the text of Holy Scripture is testify to everything that God is and has done. And so this carries that weight of authority. And then he goes on to say, the same spirit that has inspired these texts should be at work in us as we read it and teach it and talk through it. But there is a kind of graded scale here. So you have God who gives authority to Scripture and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at work in the authors and transmission of the text. And then the Spirit should be at work in us as we testify to the truth of this right here. Does that make sense? And so at the top of a pile is God with all of his authority. And what we say is the direct influence and work of the Holy Spirit in these texts is what gives this its ultimate authority. And we should be operating with that same spirit at work in us as we read it and and teach it. But Scripture rules. Right? Now, that doesn't make tricky places of Scripture any easier to interpret. It means a serious measure of humility as we come to the texts to parse these things out. Does that make sense? But the voice of Scripture should sort of rule and reign. Okay. Um, How we talk about Inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility will we'll split Christian traditions into a variety of places and spaces and split uh, denominations or split churches even within similar traditions. Okay. And so from center point, this is sort of the church's stance. The scripture is inspired. And the church that we are attending as we talk about this wants to say, and I agree, uh, that the Spirit is involved in the composition and transmission of the text, such that everything said is what the Spirit wanted to communicate. However, the Spirit does not override the human author. That doesn't mean that the human author makes mistakes. That means that the personality of Paul is still in the compositions that Paul put together. It means that the nuances and differences we pick up in, in styling is the spirit working through a human author, not just turning them into a zombie, putting them in a trance where they all of a sudden produce these things. So that, I mean, yeah, there could have been times where you know the Holy Spirit just gave him a message, but he chose to put an exclamation point on it instead of. Perhaps we get we get these nuances. There's a there's a section in the First Corinthian letter where Paul says, "Look, uh, God says this," and then in the next paragraph he says, "I'm gonna say this." And this isn't necessarily like God threw me to you, but this is like really good advice. You should probably do this. Paul is sort of feeling out this distinction. He says, here's the baseline. This is what God says. This is what he's clear about. Now, here's my advice based on that baseline. And he's driving this little nuance. Okay? And we would come to that and say, the Spirit wanted Paul to say all of that in his letter. And so we can come to that today and pick up, okay, here's the foundation. Here's the baseline. And here's the nuance, as Paul wants to teach that through. Is that making sense? Okay. Um, any other questions on the idea? We're doing okay. Okay. Um, what are some of the, the passages you found that relate back to inspiration? Last week we talked about 2 Timothy 3.16. So that one's our given. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful for rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. Are there any others? 
Okay. Okay, we'll come to the first Corinthians in just a second. Second uh, Peter 1, 20 and 21. Okay. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think that phrase in the, in the second Peter letter is the phrase I'm trying to get at when we talk about the church's position. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit. That the, the writers and authors of Scripture and the prophets who spoke and gave direction were people like you and I, carried along by the Spirit, delivering the message that was necessary. And so when Isaiah speaks and delivers that message, it sounds like Isaiah, but it's, but it's God's message. When Jeremiah speaks, it sounds like Jeremiah. And when Ezekiel speaks, it sounds like Ezekiel. But the content, Holy Spirit carried, produced, inspired, yeah. Uh, your first Corinthian passage was what again? 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. I think that one is back in our camp of um, the way that we come to it and read it and are paying attention to it. Spirit produced, spirit authored. So we should be spirit led as we read, interpret, and understand. 14. Mm-hmm. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Yep, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Very good. Very good. Okay. Some of our passages for. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Psalms and Proverbs are big for this one. Um, Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What else? 19.7. Yeah, those were the first two in my list as well. If I can get through Psalm 19. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay. Others? Proverbs 30, verse 5. I had that one. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The word of God proves true thing is the biggie. Uh, When God and Moses are having a a conversation and Moses is relaying that to the people of Israel and Moses is, is warning the people about false prophets, he says, if what they say doesn't happen, don't believe that prophet. If on the other hand they say things, on God's behalf and those things take shape, then we should probably be listening. Right? And so the accuracy and the truth of a given statement from a particular prophet becomes one of those hallmarks. Others for this one. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. 
sweet. Do you have it pulled up? Yeah. Would you mind reading it? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. I think this is for both. We can, we can put this in the category of both uh, inspiration and inerrancy, probably in, infallibility as well, sort of a catch-all. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Notice the movement there, right? God spoke, and it's through somebody else. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. <coughs> Other pieces? And answer Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... That's the second. The first one is the oath, right? In which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I read that one for my students and they go, wait, it's impossible for God to do something? And I go, uh-huh. God can't lie. God can't sin. Contrary to his nature. C.S. Lewis has the best explanation of this if you ever really need to unpack that idea. God cannot do what is opposite his nature. This is sort of defining of beings. It's an ontological thing. We as beings cannot do what is opposite our nature. Same is true for God. God cannot sin. He cannot lie. James picks that up. Hebrews picks that up. Right? Most of what we're going to talk about in inerrancy and infallibility starts with the idea of inspiration. Because if the Holy Spirit is producing the texts of Scripture, and that God cannot lie, and he tells us the truth, and his words prove true, then we would expect what's produced of the Holy Spirit to be without errors, and to be completely true and trustworthy, especially for the life of faith, salvation, the revelation of the person of God, etc. Is that making sense? Um, infallibility. Did we find some? Did you did you find some that were different from the inerrancy ones in terms of quick passages of scripture, or was there a ton of overlap here? There's a lot there of overlap. A lot of overlap. I saw Second yeah. Timothy come up a bunch. Second mm-hmm. Timothy three sixteen. That one, and then yeah. uh, two two fifteen came up at one point. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we looked at um, 2 Peter 1, 21 already. And so what ends up happening is that we go back to 19 and you read 19 through 21 and it creates this little framework and you get all three ideas sort of rolled into one package. 2 Peter 1, uh, 19 through 21. Okay. Did we say Titus 1, 2? We did not. 
Uh, do you have it? I've got it. Go ahead. Would you read it? Um, yeah. In the hope of eternal life. It's in the middle of the sentence. Yeah. In the hope of eternal life, which God you cannot buy from us long ago. Yeah. It's Titus. Titus 1. John 17, 17. John 17, 17. Jesus is talking with the disciples. He says, sanctify them in the truth. And then he adds this, your word is truth. Uh, and, and John, who's really good with irony and sort of double entendre, is, is playing on that. Uh, your word is truth, the texts of scripture. And then Jesus, who's standing there, who is the word of God in his life. It's a, it's a both and, not an either or, Right? making sense we're back in that Karl Barth framework Jesus Christ who's God's self-disclosure scripture who makes that clear and then we who come to scripture learning unpacking and testifying to what scripture tells us okay bless you so then with this framework at play We both have a kind of confidence and a kind of challenge when it comes to Scripture, right? The confidence is that what Scripture tells us is true. We can trust it for what it teaches us about God. We can trust it for faith and salvation. We can trust it for truth when it comes to science and history and math as it overlaps those topics. But it raises a lot of questions. Like how do we line up and understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 1? science and how science understands the way things have developed and which do we trust to be that sort of final authority on these kinds of matters is scripture concerned with the science <clears throat> to a certain extent it is to a certain extent it's not it's concerned about the God who's doing the activity and the people that he's going to make when we get to Genesis 1 26 27 science isn't irrelevant either, right? And so this great space of confidence in the truth of Scripture also presents to us a unique challenge, especially in a culture where the world around us doesn't share that perspective, right? And is more willing to just disregard or do really weird things with what Scripture is doing in order to assert knowledge about a particular topic. Yeah? It's really interesting, at least to me, to look at Genesis 1 and the fact that there is a beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Einstein refused to acknowledge that the universe had a beginning when he was working on his theories of relativity. He, he did not want to accept that the universe had a beginning because his theory made more sense. It's called a steady-state universe. A universe without beginning and without ending. And so he, literally, he, he messed with his equations to make them work because he did not want to acknowledge the reality that science had said there was a beginning to the universe. 
Christian scientists of his day and afterwards had said to him and of him afterward. If he had just trusted what scripture said, he would have understood there was a beginning a long time before he had the monkey with his equations. But this is that challenge that these ideas are going to present us as we come to scripture. Right? I take my students to a story in, in Joshua. I'm just going to paraphrase and we'll, we'll process it together. Um, there's a story in the conquest. Joshua and the Israelites are fighting to take over land in uh, the promised land. And God makes the sun stand still. He lengthens the day so the Israelites can win the battle and conquer the city. But that's the language of the Bible. The sun stood still. So I, I present this to my students and I go, is that an error in the biblical text? Did the sun stand still? Because we have a different understanding of the way the cosmos works today. Right? Back in whenever they're writing and however they're understanding the scripture, the earth was a snow globe. It's the best depiction I can give you for it. It's a disc with a big, big dome on top of it. And the sun and the stars moved around independent. Scripture says that the sun stood still. So is there an error in the biblical text? There's no error. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Why not? Okay. (laughs) No error because the Holy Spirit's involved. That's great. So then how do I understand... What's going on when the Bible makes these kinds of statements that don't jive with contemporary science? Well, I take my students to the daily forecast. Because we still make reference to sunrise, sunset. We know the sun's not the thing that's moving. And yet, we will continue describe the sun as the thing that moves because it rises and it sets. If we wanted to be precise about it, even with our current scientific understanding, we would talk about the rotation of the earth, but we don't. We talk about the sun as the thing that's moving. Why? Because standing here on the ground and looking into the sky, that big yellow thing is the thing that moves. The role of language matters for the Bible. Right? That's why I've got questions here connected to uh, inspiration. And I really should have made them general questions for everything. Prophecy, narrative, and poetry. I really hope that we don't read poems the same way we read laws and stories. Or better yet, I hope we don't read laws like we read poems. Some of us do. Maybe not in here. The writing of the Bible as as a product of inspiration Prophets uh, relaying the message that God gave them. Moses writing the early stories of Genesis and the subsequent stories that follow. Whoever's writing the rest of our Old Testament stories, our gospel writers writing it. The story has a particular style in that literature. And so we're going to hang our hats that the writing content and the writing style are navigated by the Holy Spirit through a human author. 
and that it is true and trustworthy in every facet. But I'm not going to read biblical narrative like I read biblical poetry. Because poems communicate meaning and message differently than narratives. The figures of speech and the way that language is patterned and structured shifts when you read poems. It's just different. Laws aren't necessarily narratives. But the surrounding context of biblical stories should help us understand where those laws are coming from and why they're there. So as we unpack this, there is a layer here that we have to keep in mind. The kind of writing that I'm reading matters. Second, the use of language matters. Now, it doesn't mean we can just go ahead and make everything metaphorical. But it does mean that there are figures of speech at play Things like the sun stood still. That we still say things along those same lines today. Right? There's a turn of phrase in, in the Hebrew, okay, and there's a historic reality. There, there's a king mentioned in the king's text and in the chronicles text. And in the king's text, he, he comes to the throne at a particular age and he reigns for two years. And in the chronicles text, he comes to the throne at a particular age and he reigns for 20 years. Hmm. There's two things going on. Number one, uh, one of those phrases is he was the son of 20 years when he became king. Okay? So that seems to be a reference to his age. Okay? Could also be a reference to his mom's age. Okay. He reigns for two years. King's text emphasizes the independent reign of every king. Chronicles text, however... There's a nuance in it because we have a couple of periods of co-regency. So firstborn sons of kings at a certain age would take regency with their fathers. And they would reign, but not independently. Dad could still step in to fix it if son went, you know, and did something silly. And so we look at these two places and we say, it looks like the king's text is giving us the reign of this king as he appears independently on the throne and he reigns for a period of two years before he dies. We look at the Chronicles text, it looks like he has a period of co-regency and his reign is longer because his regency includes that and his independent reign. Is that making sense? Okay, so... There are nuances here, and there are puzzles, and there are things that get stated and presented, and so we just have to pull back and consider two things. What's the expression and the language? What's the context of a given phrase and sentence? Right? Like I tell my students, go the extra mile. Unless you're really with it and you understand what Jesus said, we have no idea where that comes from. phrase actually comes from Jesus in the Gospels. Roman law, a Roman soldier could walk up to any Jew in Palestine and say, you're going to carry my gear for a mile. And you had no choice. You were going to carry that gear for a mile. So Jesus says, go ahead, carry the gear for a mile. Go two. Do it one better. The first one is your obligation to the law. The second one is the generosity of your heart. Go the extra mile. We use that phrase today. We use it all the time. And most people who use it have no idea that it's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Because we have these terms of phrase. Okay. This, are you with me? Okay. So when we read, we've got to read carefully, is what I'm saying. 
When we read, we've got to be attentive to what's being said. But we're going to come back and we're going to hang our hats all the time. The Spirit's involved, so it doesn't have errors in it. And I can trust it. And that's where we're going to sort of live. Still good? Trick, then, is what we're going to talk about next week. How now do I read and process and look at the words that are there and what's being said and then move from that to meaning in the message so that that movement is always present. What's there? Now what does it mean? Because if we're not careful, it's really easy to fall into the trap of showing up on Sundays and listening to what it means but not reading for ourselves what it says. And we, we got to get that. We got to read for what it says and then move to what it means. And places like this and Sunday morning with Sean, those are the spaces where that gets extra helpful. And we, we get clarity on that movement from what it says to what it means. Still good? Okay, questions or concerns? Do you think I'm crazy yet? No, I don't think you're crazy. It's fair if you did. Go ahead. Psalms. The Psalms. It's poetry. It is poetic. But it's still teaching Truth, correct, 100%. And I've, I've heard before, well, Psalms is just poetry, and it seems to be no. put in a bucket of it's not as authoritative as the law. Incorrect. They're, I disagree they're 100%. Teaching, and maybe I heard wrong, but they're both teaching truths. You just have to figure out really what it's correct. saying. Correct. So the, the deal with poetic texts, um, Psalms falls into this. Some of the oracles of the prophets fall into this. Um, Isaiah's got a little, a, a little section where he's talking about people who make idols. And it's, uh, it's, it is dripping with sarcasm. He is just making fun of idol makers left, right, and center. He's talking about cutting down a tree and you take half of it to burn as wood for your food. And you take the other half and you carve an idol and then you bow down and worship it. And he's just he's laying into people. Making, it's like a stand-up comic. And so we get these little moments in Scripture where the, the language is going to get figurative and metaphorical. We're going to have these things crafted in special ways. But they are still aiming, teaching, leading, guiding, directing us to truth. All of those. Some of those uh, psalms will say things like, I, I was known in the womb, formed and knitted together. And we hang our hats on that as Christians. So do the Jews. So what we're not saying is that the use of language determines truth or not truth. What we are saying is when we come to poetic texts, the way that language is being used means we have to be careful and considerate readers. We want to hold the Spirit's involvement, the, the, the lack of errors in the text, and its, and its reliability very tightly, and we should. But literature as mechanisms for communication all over. In narrative, imagery, and setting, and the naming or the not naming of characters, significant and important. Poetry, figurative expressions, and descriptions, right, that don't have to be literal, but are still communicating truth, matter just as much. And so what we do when we come to those poetic texts is we, we just gotta sit with the language process. And part of the, the point of the Psalms is that it's, it's, uh, it's prayer and worship. And, and so in some sense, we, we have to sit with them a little longer. we got to process a little deeper. And, and we've got to let the 
the rest of Scripture be available to us as we process through. A lot of those psalms are going to retell stories, right? With styles of uh, communication and language that have truth and meaning embedded in them, it just it might take us longer to get to those pieces, right? But we would do the same thing with something like Jesus. He says, I am the door. None of us actually think he's one of those. Right? And so when it's something like that, we automatically go to that level of figurative use of language and we understand what he means. I'm the passageway. If you're getting to the Father, you're coming through me. Because that's what a door does. If you're getting into this room, you came through the door. If you're going to go out of this room, you're going to go through the, unless you're creating a serious problem, you're going to go out the door. Right? So those kinds of, this is what we're saying with language. We need to be careful readers and we need to pay attention to that language, but we're not invalidating anything we've already said about the truth and about the Spirit's involvement. Right? Helpful? Yeah. What else? Okay. All right, so I'm going to pose a question to us, and this is going to lead us toward next week. Okay? And if, and if you want the preview, we're going to spend time in Genesis 1 next week. We're going to do, what does, it, what does it say? What does it mean? That's the game we're going to play next week. What does it say? What does it mean? Okay. And we're going to, and we're going to start with the what it says. Okay. Instead of the what it means. Because we've been told a lot about what it means. I want to get back to what it says. We're just going to have a little exercise. Um, these concepts. Inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility. How do they affect the way we read the Bible? Positive, negative, somewhere in the middle. How do they affect the way we read the Bible? How do they shape your approach to reading it? How do they influence your encounter with the Bible? You're like, I don't know, I've never thought about it. <laughs> Take 30 seconds to think about it. What do you think? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, for for me, it's definitely made me intentional. What is this? What is, what is being what is being communicated, and how? Right. I had an Old Testament professor who used to say the two questions you ask that'll get you anywhere you need to go with the Bible is why am I told this? Why in this way? You're right. You're right. Why, why tell me this? Or why not? Why, why tell me this? Why leave these details out? Why include these things? Why tell me this? And why put it into that format? And, and that's, the, that's the... Okay, let's get into the... Yeah, I think so. No. No, go ahead. We recently did a study on the armor of God. Okay. Here it is infallible. 
air, there's no error in it. Yeah. But it's skewed based off of what I might think that means. Sure. Right. Yeah. So. It's a reminder for me that I will be clear where Scripture is clear. I'll be clear where Scripture is clear. And where there's... Where I'm not clear yet. Or... Where there are those those goofy things that we're going to sit down and talk about and we may not necessarily agree, but we'll agree to disagree because it's not essential. I'm going to hold with the humility. Okay. That humility, I think, is good for us to keep in mind. A, a willingness to pursue and press deep, coupled with the humility. How else does it shape the way we come to Scripture? I don't know. Go ahead. I used to, when I was reading... favorites, and I, I do this with my students, um, there are two Proverbs back to back. And the first one says, answer a fool according to his folly, for he will be wise in his own eyes. Now, if we let foolish people go on being foolish, they're going to make fools of themselves. That's just how that works. But the very next proverb is, answer a fool according to his folly, and you will be just like him. Well, which one is it? Am I supposed to correct the fool, or am I supposed to look like one? And I think the answer in Proverbs is timing and Answer a fool according to his folly. Correct where he's gone wrong. Otherwise, he's going to make a disaster out of it. And the next one is answer a fool according to his folly. If you answer him like him, yeah, you're going to look a fool too, despite how wise you are. And when you do it, how you do it, oh, okay. okay. Now, now there's traction. And so I think some of that plays in when we've got these little puzzles in Scripture. Because not everything is clear 100% of the time. century minds, we want clarity that may or may not be possible. Um, There's enough in Scripture to be clear, but not enough. And maybe that's our limited human understanding, that we can get our hands around everything all the time. And that's a very tenuous balance, and that nuance makes a lot of us really
fair. Science and science says that our brains are limited to 12 to 14 percent of its full capacity. God maybe gave us that because He said, "I want you to keep looking for that extra <laughs> percentage, man. I want you to keep looking for it, keep seeking." Sure. For me, inspiration and inerrancy and accountability do two things. Uh, one, confidence. Trust. It will be my final rule of authority. So whatever, whatever I think of science and Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2 is my final authority. And, and for me, the buck stops with God did it. And there are certain elements of the what he did that I'm going to hang my hat on. And there are other question marks around what he did that I'm willing to go, eh, I don't understand and I'm okay not understanding. It's taken me a while to get there. Because I'm the guy that's got to know everything about everything. But that kind of, well, I trust it. And, and I'll continue to pursue understanding it, but I'm going to trust it in the meantime. Uh, a lot of our culture um, and a lot of churches, unfortunately, have moved in the opposite direction. I'm going to distrust it and trust psychology, science, and all these other things because we know better. Ah, I don't know. Uh, the ancient world had answers to things that, that we have let go of that I really think we should grab. Okay. Um, so let's layer number one, this confidence and trust. The second piece, uh, and this is a tendency I find with my students, is I think for a lot of us, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility flatten out the text of the Bible. The three-dimensional life of a story often gets flattened out into what's the devotional takeaway or what lesson do I learn? And, and we forget that in the white spaces between lines of text, there, there are real people with real lives, with real situations that are taking place, right? And uh, I like to take my students to, to, the, to the story and Genesis 38 between Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar and it's a weird story but um, the narrator introduces Tamar to us in that story and says that she took off her widow's garments and she uh, dressed herself and she put on a veil and she stood waiting for Judah to come to town the only other character in the Genesis text, all 50 chapters, the only other character described as wearing a veil is Rebecca and she's coming to meet Isaac She's dressed as a bride. Now Tamar is standing waiting for Judah, and she's supposed to be given his youngest son in marriage. She's wearing a veil. And Judah assumes that she's a prostitute. And it's amazing to me how many commentators of Scripture just run with Judah's understanding. And they haven't connected the dots. That she, standing there veiled, isn't necessarily dressed as a prostitute. She's dressed as a bride trying to remind her father-in-law of his obligation to her and her family, right? I think what we do is we just flatten it out. And it's easy because, oh, it's the Word of God. And it has this kind of sacred monotone to it. And we, we lose the dynamic and the nuanced nature of what's going on as we read the Bible. Or we boil it down to a kind of basic point. Maybe not all of us. But I think that's the opposite side of some of the other pieces that we've talked about. And so I don't want to boil it down and oversimplify it and, and overcook it and lose 
some of the dynamic nuance that has real significance and meaning. Because her dressed as a bride has something to say pretty dramatically about Judah's character in that storyline. That we would miss if we just assumed, oh yeah, well she was just dressed as a bride. No, she's not. So hang on a second. This has a lot more to do with Judah and how far he's come in the opposite direction of the way he's supposed to be going at that moment in the storyline. And so we're going to try next week and we're going to look at Genesis 1 together. And I'm going to press. And like I do with my students, I'm going to poke. And I'm just going to ask some questions. And I'm going to make us go back and look. And, and this is kind of the, the practical piece. But what I'm going to try and get us to is a way to read for what it says to then move back to what it means. That allows us to not flatten it out and just boil it down or overcook it or over-trust it so that we don't pay attention to the details that are there. Does that make sense? Okay. Questions, concerns? Freakouts? I'm definitely crazy now. Okay? Okay. Um, well, we'll pick up there next week then. Thanks, guys. Thank you.